Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, Furner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon the exchange for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. That's the opening uh, paragraph to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And he goes on in the next several paragraphs uh, to describe just exactly how dead Marley was. And he explains why a little bit later on when he says, this must be distinctly understood, the fact that Marley was dead, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. If you remember the story of Scrooge, he goes on to essentially be redeemed. But the entirety of the wonder of that story depends upon the fact that Marley was dead. And so Dickens needed to establish that very early on. And so what we have been establishing over the past six weeks or so, six weeks or so, is very, very similar. We looked at the story of Joseph. Joseph being sold by his brothers, his brothers sold into slavery, betrayed by his master and tossed into jail. As good as dead in that jail cell. Moses, the prince of Egypt, having killed a man, fleeing into the desert. As good as dead to his people, tending sheep in the desert until he was 80. Gideon, the coward, weak and scared, not really living, threshing wheat in a wine press for fear of the Midianites. Samuel, having called together all Israel, leaving them open to attack from the Philistines, completely unarmed, completely unable to defend themselves. They could call as good as dead. David, the greatest earthly king that Israel ever had, committing this great sin, this series of great sins, deserving of death. And then last week, in Ephesians, we learned how we are dead in our sin. And more than just reflecting on us, that provides us a way to be able to understand some of the puzzling pieces from these stories. You know, we see David and Moses and Gideon, these great leaders that God had raised up, being broken and hobbled by these sins that we don't really understand why they would have committed them. And Joseph's brothers, you remember after, after Jacob died, they went to Joseph and they said, please don't kill us. They had assumed that the only reason that Joseph hadn't killed them yet was because their father was still alive. Because that's really probably what they would have done. But that passage in Ephesians that we dealt with last week, and, and we'll reread that a little bit later on, shows us that these were all men who were dead in their sin. Men who were by action, attitude, and nature sinners. And they were just doing what sinners do. They were doing what was in their nature to do. 
despite what merit they might have had, despite how God might have used them, despite how they saved their people for a time, none of them was able to follow with their whole heart. And none of them were able to lead their people to true and lasting salvation. They were saviors for a time, but they were insufficient saviors. They could not effect a lasting salvation. But each one of these stories that we've looked at has this one special moment in it. See, every, every, single, one, every single story has this arc that it's following, this path, this trajectory. And you can see it unfolding, and you can sort of see where it's heading. But in every single one of these stories, there's this point where all of a sudden the path takes this hard turn in an unexpected direction. Joseph is rotting male, but he's called out and placed in charge of all Egypt. Moses, tending the sheep in the desert, but God, but God calls to him out of the burning bush. Gideon, the angel visits him and calls this coward a mighty man of valor. Samuel assembles Israel, and they're under attack, and God speaks. David is spoken to through the prophet Nathan convicting David of his sin and pronouncing judgment on him. So before this point, before this one particular moment, each one of these people's paths, according to human terms, was headed in a particular direction. And it was bad. That's what it comes down to. If you'd like to turn to Ephesians 2 with me. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, there are um, some Bibles, some black Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, it's page uh, 976 in those. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our sins. And so what's a dead man going to do? What can a dead man do? A dead man can only do what it is in his nature to do. Be dead. Decay. Melt away into the dust. And so this is the direction of our lives. The direction of all humanity apart from God's intervention. It's a swift downward spiral into decay and dust. Thomas Hobbes was a philosopher who described the human existence as being solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Because we are incapable by our very natures of living lives that are not governed by death and sin. And if you disagree, I'd, I'd tell you to use the scripture as a mirror to examine yourselves. But I have found that in me there is nothing good I am not a good person. I'm not a nice person. But the more that I find, and the more that I find out about who God is and who he calls us to be, the more I realize how short I fall of that standard and of all the ways that I don't measure up. 
But what we see happening here, what we see in each one of these stories, what we see in this passage in Ephesians, is God stepping in and changing that path. Ephesians 2, picking up in verse 4. We had just said we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But God. It's two little words that mean everything. So when we see this, when we see that first word, but, that word doesn't negate what came before. We use it that way uh, today, really. We use it as a way to uh, sort of cover up and smooth over a, a little white lie. Well, yeah, that's a nice outfit, but if you change the shirt and the pants, it'd look a lot better. Um, you know, so, so that's, that's kind of the way that we use that. But there is no deceit in God. There is no lie in God. He is a God of truth. And so in his word, when he says, but, that doesn't completely negate what came before, but it acknowledges it and it affirms it. And it indicates that what comes after won't follow the same course. It indicates that what comes after is more in some way. It's stronger. It's more compelling. It overrides. It overcomes what came before. And we use it like that, don't we? I shouldn't eat that, but I don't want to have to take care of the leftovers. What came after is stronger than what came before. I really need to finish this, but I'm going to bed. The call of the bed is worse, stronger than the call of the dirty dishes. What came before is true, but what comes after is stronger. And so in verse 4, we have all of the weakness and all of the darkness and all of the sin that's coming before. And it's acknowledged and affirmed that that is truth, but what comes after it is stronger, is better. But God. And so in all of these stories of darkness and of weakness and of hopelessness and helplessness, the drastic change of direction is summed up in that one word, God. Our sin and death is true and valid, but God is stronger. God is more powerful than any of these things, and he is what overcomes our sin and our death. So Joseph, rotting in jail, but God called him out and placed him in charge of Egypt for the salvation of many. Moses, wandering in the desert, but God called him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Gideon was weak and cowardly, but God fought his battles for him. Samuel was under attack, but God spoke in power and defeated the Philistines by the power of his word alone. David stacked up sin upon sin, but God spoke through the prophet and called him to repentance. And you were dead in your sins. This, this condition can't change, won't change, any more than someone who is dead can raise themselves back to life. 
And this is why it's important that we understand that we are dead in our sins. This is our path, unchangeable, unalterable. But God, because it is true that you were dead, that you followed the course of this world, that you followed the prince of the power of the air, you followed the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and the mind. It's true that you were in open rebellion against God. It's true that you were living in treason against the creator of the universe. The statement doesn't deny that and it doesn't erase that. It acknowledges it and affirms it. Yes, you were dead. Yes, you were addicted. Yes, you were a liar. Yes, you were dead. But God has made you alive. And at this moment, this is the point of that new direction when God steps into your life and changes that trajectory forever. And so this is the pattern that we see and that we celebrate this time of year at Christmas. The world was dead. It was broken and sin-sick. Hopeless, helpless, longing for redemption. Populated with these frail, fragile creatures who thought that they were good enough. Who thought that they could be like God these tiny little insignificant beings thinking that they could be like God. God who is perfect, God who is holy and beautiful and wonderful and just. He had all of the power and of the privilege that comes with being the one through whom and by whom we live and breathe and have our being. God, perfect, holy, wonderful and just, and us frail, fragile, deceived. There's this great gulf between the two, between us and God. And that gulf is not bridged, that gulf is not overcome by requiring man to cross it. We can't, we're dead, we can't do anything. Our sinful acts, our sinful attitudes, and our very sinful natures have, each made, a, have made us each enemies of God and incapable of crossing that gulf. And if we saw that gap, that gulf, and we properly understood it, we understood just how deep and just how far it was from us to God if we really internalize that, the only response is despair. But this gap was bridged by Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Come to earth because we could not go to him. Come to earth in, not in power, not in might, not in majesty, but in humility, in weakness and fragility. In Philippians 2, 6, it says that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clung to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Christmas is about love, and it is about joy, and about peace, but it's in a different way, a greater way than the world around us 
would have us believe. Christmas was the start of the plan by which we, as dead men, as sinners, as enemies of God, could be reconciled to him. The entire track of human history up until that point had been pointing into a slow descent into sinful, evil, despicable madness. But Christ came, and he came as a human being, subject to every temptation, every weakness that we are, but overcoming them all without sin. And in living without sin in his life, he took on the punishment for my sin instead. He took the wrath of God that should have been directed at me for my sins and my wrongs. And he took that penalty on himself and gave me instead his righteousness, his goodness. Christmas was the start of the plan by which the greatest injustice in all of history would be visited upon the single innocent man so that the greatest of wretches, so that the most dead of men, so that I, so that you, could be brought near to God. And in the same way that he reached into each one of these characters' stories arcs, and dictated that hard right turn, at Christmas, God stepped into the story arc of humanity, into the arc of all creation, and all of a the sudden, there is another way. And so if the direction of the world, if the trajectory of our world was this slow descent into madness, if the spiritual state of every human being on their own merits was that of death, then when God stepped into the story, he made a way for dead men to live. And that way is, is open and available to us all. God is great, and he is good. He is deserving of all worship and all honor. But we place other things in our lives. We place ourselves in front of him. And when we do that, that is called sin. Our sin demands punishment because God is just, and to allow our sin to go unpunished would not be just. The punishment for our sin is death. And so apart from Christ, we live under that death sentence, that condemnation. Jesus Christ, whose birth we remember at Christmas, took that condemnation upon himself and was killed on the cross in my place. He was perfect, sinless, righteous, never lied, never made a mistake, perfect and blameless before God. And on the cross, that innocent man, the Son of God, the perfect spotless lamb, was killed. God took my sin and applied it to his account. God took his perfection and applied it to my account. He hung my sin around his neck and crowned me with his goodness, with his righteousness. And in doing so, the thing that kept me from God is no longer mine. It was paid for by another.
I am no longer separate from God. I'm no longer dead, but alive. God stepped into the story of creation and provided a way. And in doing so, he fulfilled the promises that had been made from Genesis onward, that God and man would one day be reconciled. So Christmas is the story of that promise being filled. The first advent, the first coming of Christ to earth. He did so to make a way for us to be reconciled to God, for us to be reunited with our creator. We have that reconciliation. That way is available to us. That promise has been fulfilled. But we also have a promise that he will come again, not in humility and weakness, but in power and in glory. And the crowning moment of all creation will be when he makes all things new. And weakness and pain and trouble and sin and death have all been defeated and destroyed. When God gathers together his people, those who have trusted in him, those who have followed him and not followed the course of this world. It's in Revelation 21, where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As we look back at Christmas and we remember that first Advent, we are compelled, we are required to look forward with anticipation to the second Advent. When those who believe, those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, will find the satisfaction of all of their longings, will find justice for all of the wrongs done, will find comfort for all of their tears, because they will be united with God. The way, the path forward from here to that day is open to every single one of us. It's available to each one of us who will say, God, I've been following the course of this world, but I want to follow you. God, I've been following the prince of the power of the air, but I want to follow you. I've been following the passions of the flesh, the desires of my body, but I want to follow you. I want you to step into my life with that sort of but God moment so that my path forward is completely different from the path that got me here. My way has been wrought with nothing but disappointment and heartache. It has been marked only by death and by sin. So please turn my path towards you. And when you ask him to do that, he will. You're in for a little bit of a wild ride. He will give you new passions, new desires. He gives you a new family in his church. There's a cost. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you wealth. It may cost you power and prestige. You will have to face your sin rather than hiding it or hiding from it. But he will work in you and through you to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to shape you and to form you into a better image of who he is.
and that work will take place from now until the end of your pilgrimage here on earth. So if you are walking with Christ, if you have followed after him, Christmas is a time of rejoicing. It's a time for you to proclaim that salvation has come. God has made a way. He has come to make a way for a perfect God to be reconciled with imperfect man. But if this is news for you today, if the reality of your sin, if the joy of Christ is news for you, if you are broken under the weight of your sin, if you are crushed under the power of this world, the good news is that at Christmas, God made a way for that weight to be lifted, for that power to be broken, for broken men and women to be made whole. Because this is the pattern of Christmas, of God stepping into the world with these two little words, but God. Ask him today to step into your life with the same power and the same grace and forgiveness that he did at Christmas and to change the course of your life from this day until he comes again. Father, we are so grateful. We are so thankful. We are overwhelmed and overawed, God, by just what you accomplished. We know that we don't understand it fully, and we won't until your return But even the bits and pieces that we do understand, God, are enough to render us speechless at the beauty and glory of the grace that you have extended to us. So this Christmas season, let us proclaim with boldness and with glad and happy hearts the salvation that you wrought through Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, and his resurrection, and his soon coming, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.